Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. 97.1 FM Talk. On Demand Audio. The only thing I'm going to need from you guys right now is a cup of coffee. Today's global economy waits for no man. America. Today's global business climate is like, whatever, dude. Politics is a dirty game. I'm not sure we want to play. There are forces here at work that you couldn't possibly understand. You have no idea how high up this goes. Welcome to Wiggins America. Follow him on Twitter at Radio Wiggins. Welcome to Wiggins America this weekend. A lot of times I have to say this weekend because the show is nice and fresh for you on Saturday morning, just like we are right now. And then it gets replayed on Sunday going into the Heidi Harris show. So I can't say good morning or good Saturday to you. I have to say good weekend because it plays back on Sunday. But that's not the case today because of Christmas Eve being tomorrow. Uh, it is going to be an Annie Fry show Christmas special of which I'm a part of too. So I'm glad to promote that, not just because of 97.1, but because I have a personal vested interest in it with a lot of the music and the pieces. And I helped put that together again this year and looking forward to letting you consume that commercial free starting tomorrow at noon and running through almost midnight, and then I think they take a break overnight, and then we come back at it at about 7 in the morning on Christmas. So that is a lot of Christmas music, some interviews, some little pieces, some entertainment stuff that we've put together, as we usually do, that is all for you on Christmas Eve and Christmas. That being said, because this is a holiday weekend, my full intention was to play a best of this Saturday morning for you. But then... Colorado ruled that the former president of the United States, who's running for office again, cannot be on the ballot because of nothing. Uh, They really did not cite anything. And in fact, there was a hard dissent from liberal justices in Colorado that said this is ridiculous. Other states, other Democrat justices in other states have said that this is ridiculous. So... It's not just you. I am also very, very mad about this because activists have taken over this country and do not respect the Constitution at all. I do believe that the Constitution will win, but I thought I've got to come in and talk about this because I'm just too worked up over it. So here's the deal. It's going to be kind of a hybrid. Uh, The next couple of breaks, including this one, actually, we're going to replay some of the best of stuff uh, that's still relevant today. Best of 2023. But then at the end of each hour, I'm going to come in and talk more about Colorado because I just can't help myself. So a little bit of prep, 
uh, that we've already put into the show is still going to run. Nico Moran, he's from Swan Bitcoin. That interview is coming up next. That happened just after the banks were collapsing. You probably don't even remember that. I was listening back going, oh, yeah, that was a big story this year. Um, And he talks about, I think he talks a little bit about why that was happening, but why the whole financial institution is messed up and, you know, the libertarian dream of Bitcoin is the solution to that problem. You know, we're pretty open about him being biased in that direction. But, hey, I think it's actually a pretty good discussion. I wanted to play that back next in the next segment. And then William Forstgen is going to talk about EMPs and the threat of the attack and really what the reality of an attack would look like in the first second, the first minute, the first week after an EMP attack in the United States. What would that look like? What? How are we protected? How are we not? Uh, I thought that was a really good conversation, too. So that'll be just this hour. And then I'll come back the next hour and tell you about what I have for you in that one. But right now, what I have for you is from only a couple months ago. This is a discussion about how easy it is to accidentally pull a fire alarm like Jamal Bowman did when he was trying to just leave the congressional building. Wow, Wiggins America. If you're anything like me, you're really concerned about uh, Jamal Bowman pulling a fire alarm to end the congressional vote, or at least delay the congressional vote, because you wanted Congress to keep spending money. You wanted Congress to get a deal done because you wanted them to keep spending money. (laughs) There's a lot of angles at this, if you can't tell. Uh, But Jamal Bowman is a uh, Democrat representative who was just trying to get out of the building. He was just leaving because he was mad. He was mad at the vote, and he was trying to leave, and he was was near a door. There's a picture of him. There's video of him near a door where he normally leaves, but instead of pulling the door handle, he pulled a fire alarm. Gah! I, I know. We all do it. We all have done it, and we all want grace in these circumstances when we accidentally pull a fire alarm instead of opening a door. In his defense, it was near a door that he uses sometimes to walk out of. He walks through that door. So I'm sure that having used that door before, that wouldn't help you discern whether or not you were opening a door or pulling the fire alarm. You could get confused. You know, I I would think actually, in retrospect, after I say that, I would think practice makes perfect. That if you were walking up to some random door that had a fire alarm next to it, you wouldn't know which one to pull to get out of the room. But in his case, you know, now that I've said that, he's used that door quite a bit. So I would think that walking up to the door that he's used, he would know which one was the door handle. But I thought, I will just give you some things in case you're in that same boat. Because we've all, like I said, we've all been there. If you get confused as to what a door handle is or what a fire alarm handle is, usually they say fire on them and they say pull down for fire and they're red. But that's not always indicative. You know, some of them can say fire alarm on them, not just fire. Some of them, instead of saying pull down, they say pull you know, some of the, where they're made in different eras. So obviously, like if you're you're looking at one made in the 70s and it just says fire on it, you're going to go, what the heck does that mean? Whereas now we need the newer ones that say fire alarm, pull in case of fire. 
You know, if you were born pre-1985, you probably had no idea how to use a 70s fire alarm. But Jamal Bowman, I, I don't know how old he is. He's probably around since at least the 70s. I would think maybe he would know that, but I don't know. Um, so I wanted to give you a few things that are not fire alarms. Just life advice. This isn't even political. Uh, number one on my list is a napkin. Number two, a bottle of soda or a beverage, anything really, any bottle. It's not a fire alarm. A USB port. Global warming. Sunny Bono. <clears throat> a tickle fight. None of these things, a hammer, none of these things are a fire alarm. Uh, your buddy Lance, a snake, uh, any of your immediate relatives, a toe, like a severed toe, um, a dead body, a gravestone, a gun. Your arm. Last but not least, a door handle. Those things are not a fire alarm. And this is, I'm not hearing this kind of help on most shows. So if I were you, I would definitely podcast this and give this to your friends and family because you want them to know not to get into all kinds of trouble next time they're in a, a building and they accidentally pull a fire alarm just trying to leave the building. Again, it happens. This is just a PSA. It's just like when it gets really cold and the news comes on, they go, hey, you might want to wear a coat. You know, make sure you have heat. Uh, make, make sure that people you know aren't dying. You know, that kind of stuff. This is that stuff. And you want to share that with your friends and family. What is, what is amazing is that what I've just said is pretty much the actual defense of Democrats. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. 97.1 FM Talk. This is Wiggins America. So I've been seeing a lot of people in the wake of these bank collapses say, at, at, you should have trusted Bitcoin. And so I wanted to have Swan Bitcoin's Nico Moran on to talk about Bitcoin. And I, I assume because you're with Swan, or, uh, yeah, Swan Bitcoin, that you're going to be in favor of Bitcoin. So, so I think we can get that out of the way, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, obviously, like, just to be fully transparent, I'm obviously going to be biased towards Bitcoin. But I mean, look, it, the reality is that if you have your money in a bank, you're outsourcing the personal responsibility of the storage of your wealth to a third party. Um, and you could have you could have made the argument that that was necessary, um, you know, once upon a time. But now that we have the technology where if you write down, you know, a 12-word seed phrase, consider it a password towards your Bitcoin, you don't have to trust another person. But it does take, you know, it, it is very daunting to a lot of people because it, it's completely under your control, meaning there is no 1-800 number to call if your funds are stolen 
or, you know, if, if you can't access your account. So it does take something that a lot of people are just not used to because they've been outsourcing that for a lot of their lives to banks. And I, this is one of the reasons that I'm fascinated by crypto in general. And I, I do own a little bit of Bitcoin, not that I really know what I'm doing, but just because I I love the philosophy of it, like you're talking about, because it's not just investment. There, there's so much more to it. Um, but I think a lot of people have been scared about crypto because of the Sam Bankman fried stuff, because people have obviously abused it. But my question for you is, is all crypto created equal or are some much more reliable than others? Yeah. So there's Bitcoin and then there's crypto. Um, Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency that because of the way that it was created, it has a monetary policy. It has rules and those rules can't be changed. Um, Every other cryptocurrency, it's very similar to, how fiat money works, right? There's a set of rules and those set of rules are changed by the people that are the most powerful in, in that either, you know, if, if it applies to fiat currencies, it's society, right, in general. And if it's those cryptocurrencies, it's the founders, right? And they pick and choose and they change the monetary policy to benefit themselves while everybody else gets hurt. The, the very unique part about Bitcoin is the rules can't be changed by anyone, right? They're set in stone. The issuance rate is set in stone. You can't change it. And what that does is it makes the system equal for everybody, meaning if you are the president of a country, if you're a very powerful person, if you're a billionaire, you have to get in line like everybody else to buy that Bitcoin. There's no, there's no special deal for you. You're, you're equal to everybody, right? And a lot of people don't like that, uh, specifically governments, right? Governments love having the ability to create money for free that everyone else has to work for, right? They, they can just print money, right? And Bitcoin, doesn't matter who you are, you have to mine Bitcoin, you have to earn Bitcoin, or you have to buy Bitcoin. There is no printer, right? And the other cryptocurrencies, uh, there's elements of what I was talking about, how you can change the rules, Right. So Ethereum is the second most popular cryptocurrency right now. And the foundation of Ethereum controls it, right? So they can change the rules. They could move things around all to benefit themselves, protect their wealth. And if you're the little guy, you could potentially get hurt by those changing of the rules, right? So I don't know if that makes sense. I know it's a little high level, a little bit technical, but Bitcoin, it's rules without rulers, everything else, that's not the case. Well, and that's why you're here is to talk about this this weekend is because it is complicated. I think most people have a very, very surface level understanding of crypto and of Bitcoin, as I do, uh, which is why I like having people like you on to come and explain these things. I, I do have a question. You were hitting on this a little bit. There's a lot of fear about governments and even the U.S. government creating digital currencies. Now, I don't know if that's exactly the same thing as we're talking about here, but is that something you can explain? Yeah, absolutely. So I was mentioning it earlier, right? So governments get a tremendous amount, specifically the U.S. government, because the U.S. has the privilege of being the world reserve currency. So it could print a tremendous amount of money without causing crazy inflation because other countries are holding the U.S. dollar, right? So it's a very, very unique privilege that the U.S. has. That being said, the U.S. government every single year has a deficit spending, spends 
basically over a trillion dollars more than it collects in taxes every year. And the, the way that they're able to do that is because of the money printing. Now, what people don't realize is that money printing is it's a wealth redistribution mechanism from the lower middle classes that don't have the means to save in assets to the very wealthy that do have the means to save in assets and more importantly to the government. So that being said, right, have to give that context. Mm-hmm. Um, what central bank digital currencies are is an attempt by governments to be able to maintain that privilege of being able to create money for free, of being able to print money. They see Bitcoin, they see the writing on the wall, and they believe that if they introduce these central bank digital currencies, they'll be able to hold on to that. Now, the issue, though, is that central bank digital currencies don't solve the reason, as don't solve the problem as to why people are choosing alternative currencies in the first place. And I always give the example of Nigeria because it's the most fascinating one. The Nigerian government ran, uh, ran a, a central bank digital currency called the E-Naira, right? The Nigerian people chose, chose not to adopt it. They chose to adopt alternatives. Now, why would you think that? You say, why would people choose not to use a state currency and why would they want to use a non-state uh, state-owned currency? And the reason is simple. In Nigeria, they have double-digit inflation. So when it comes to being able to put food on the table for your family or choosing to use your state currency, a lot of people, they choose, okay, let me put food on the table. Keep in mind, state currencies, because they're able to print them, they have inflation built in, meaning your purchasing power continues to decrease over time. And Bitcoin, that's the exact opposite. Bitcoin has a cap supply, so it's deflationary in nature. There's only 21 million Bitcoin. There will only ever be 20 million Bitcoin. So if you look at Bitcoin's history, right, Bitcoin continues to increase in purchasing power over time, while the dollar and state currencies, they continue to decrease in purchasing power over time. So what governments are hoping to do to tie tie back, what governments are trying to do is that they're trying to maintain that privilege of being able to issue money for free with central bank digital currencies. But I do not believe they're going to be successful because Bitcoin's incentives are greater than anything they'll be able to provide. Nico Moran is with Swan Bitcoin. Super valuable information. I hope that we can talk to you again because we're going to run out of time here in a minute. But uh, this is really good stuff. Let me ask you this before we do run out of time. So whether it's a government doing this or it's an individual who's listening to us talk about this right now and going, man, the banking system, I mean, we all understand it's shaky and then something happens and we all go, yeah, I knew this, but now I'm seeing it happen. If I'm wanting to invest in something that is more stable, my only concern as an investor, and I'm just speaking personally here, is that I've seen Bitcoin's price fluctuate kind of wildly over the last couple of years. I think I got into it when it was, and this is not much money, but a little bit when it was at you know 40000 per Bitcoin, and now it's at about 20000 or thereabouts. Is that is that concerning so much that it's still fluctuating so much it hasn't found like a level ground yet? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the volatility is is always going to be there if you're, you know, if if you want Bitcoin to go from 3000 to 69000, which is the latest run up, right? The volatility has to be there, right? There's going to be years that Bitcoin is down 80%, right? But there's going to be years that Bitcoin is up, you know, 500%, right? 
What I always recommend to people is Bitcoin is savings. It's not meant to be a speculation. You're not meant to trade it. Treat it as savings, right? And over time, those savings will benefit you. What I always tell people is that wait at least a cycle. A cycle is about four years, right? So those four years, you learn about Bitcoin. You learn about the advantages of living on a deflationary currency. You study what is money, right? And over time, you'll start to understand, right? And your life will radically change because a lot of people are living on an inflationary mindset. They constantly have to work harder and harder and harder, and they're not able to be able to afford things. On a Bitcoin standard, life changes completely. You're living on a deflationary mindset, meaning life, it, it's, life gets cheaper because your purchasing power, your savings actually increase over time. And I know that sounds absolutely absurd, but look at Bitcoin's history, right? Went from zero dollars all the way to a, all the way to an all time high of sixty nine thousand dollars. I'm sure that in a couple years it will be very hot. It'll be uh, it'll be a lot higher. And the reason for that is simple. There's 21 million Bitcoin and there's an infinite amount of U.S. dollars every single day. They create more and more. Yeah, that's. I mean that that alone just fascinates me. My hope as a person who's been watching Bitcoin for a few years now is that we are starting to see a leveling, that the speculation has maybe gotten in the rearview mirror and we're seeing it kind of level out. But, you know, time will tell. Nico, I really appreciate your time. Hope we can have you back sometime. Do you want people finding you with Swan, uh, with Swan Bitcoin? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. You just search Nico Bitcoin. I'll, I'll pop up pretty quickly. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, and we'll have to do it again. Appreciate your time this weekend. This is Wiggins America. We will be right back. 97.1 FM Talk. This is Wiggins America. If you've ever worried about an EMP attack, then you're in the same boat as I am. I actually wrote a book myself, a novel called The Life of Human, where that's a part of of the plot, but I didn't know. I looked into it just enough to know exactly, you know, that that nobody was going to call me on any of the facts, but I'm no expert on the subject. But this is a real subject. This is a real possibility and a real threat that I think most people are at least somewhat aware of. So I did want to talk to an expert. His name is William Forschen. He is a uh, the author, really, of the book on the subject, One Second After, among other books. William, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. So tell us what the actual likelihood of this is, because we're all we're all aware of the possibility, but how likely is this that it could be an issue or a problem for us? Okay, uh, let's define it first. EMP stands for Electromagnetic Pulse Weapon. Uh, it's created by lofting a small nuclear warhead about, you know, a little bit bigger than a Hiroshima bomb, 200 miles out in space, detonated, and that sets up an electrostatic discharge in the upper atmosphere, cascades down to the Earth, growing in intensity when it hits the Earth's surface at the speed of light, feeds into all the wiring systems, of which we got millions of miles, overloads the electrical capability, short circuits the electrical structure of America out. In other words, we go dark. And it's, it's not, it sounds tinfoil hat. It's not. It's very, very real. It's considered a major threat. And the likelihood of it, it's going to happen sooner or later. Well, William, let me ask you this, uh, since you mentioned it. Does this have to be a nuclear warhead, or is there some other way that this could affect America other than a nuke being detonated? 
there are ways of generating uh, an EMT, but it's very, unlike Hollywood, it's very, very limited, you know, a city block. Well, that's good to know because that's why. Yeah, I think we've all seen movies where you know something is—it's it, not a nuke. So that's good to know. Oh, the, the movies drive me nuts because they always seem to get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's talk about the what this looks like, and and you know you wrote about this in one second after, and the subsequent novels, uh, and I'd like to hear a little bit about this movie that's being made about your novel too. Um, <laughs> but what about the reality of this? Is this something that you say you know in our lifetime? somewhere we're actually going to have to deal with, and how are we protected against it? Okay. Throughout history, mankind's always inventing better weapons. Poison gas, World War One, nuclear weapons, World War Two. If a weapon system is made, it's almost like that old movie, you know, it's a baseball player. If they make it, they will come. Sooner or later, somebody will use it. A major player could be China. The scenario that scares me is China handing off a couple of weapons to North Korea, the Taliban, somebody like that, gives them the launch capability. And if it hits the United States, we're done. We are literally done one second after. Because with the, think about it. The electrical grid is the foundation of our society. Kill the electricity, you lose everything. And it doesn't come back. Unlike a movie... You get EMP, shorts the system, that's it. It's over with. Congressional studies show, two major congressional studies estimated death rate would be 90% within a year. 90% of all Americans would die. Wow. William Forschen on the phone with us. He's the expert on EMP attacks. And I want to ask, the, the thing that I'm sort of interested to know is politically, and I'm sure you've thought these things out. If that were to happen to the United States, isn't this mutually assured destruction then? It, it wouldn't be as if China could step into the void because wouldn't we just do the same thing back to them? That, that's a great question. You know, back in the 60s with uh, nuclear warfare blowing each other's cities apart, it's called mutual assured destruction. You do it to us, we do it to you. This is a different type of warfare involving only a couple of weapons. The scenario I'm afraid of is China is an instigator, but they then use a third-party player like Iran, you know, or North Korea, which just yesterday launched a bunch of cruise missiles and keeps saying they're going to do us. North Korea actually has films out showing them EMP in the United States. That's the type of threat I really worry about. Boy, you know what? I until the last month, I would have thought, "Oh gosh, there's no way." I've seen, you know, our our dome technology stopping missiles uh, from coming into Israel from Iraq and Iran, and and you know the technology. I would have thought we're so far ahead of these things. There's no way. And then they float a balloon into the United States, among other things, and we don't mm-hmm. know what to do about it. So I think I've been shaken a little bit by some of that stuff. Because I just always assumed that even if it's China working through North Korea, for instance, or any scenario like that, I thought, gosh, these people, we're going to have a warning system. We're going to have anti tech. We're going to have technology that's going to shoot these things down. But now I don't know. I mean, reassure me a little bit that we at least are, are considering these things. Do you want me to tell you a fairy tale and reassure you? <laughs> uh, okay. I, I guess I'll opt for the truth, but. All right, here's the truth. 
We do have an anti-ballistic missile system, but most of it is deployed in Alaska to hit about 30 or 40 warheads. But the lower West Coast, the entire Gulf of Mexico, and the East United States is wide open. You could put one of these missiles in a container ship, pull it out, blow the missile. If need be, since they're crazy, they'll blow up their own ship. Then where do we point the finger? It's too late. You know, in my book, towards the end, I have somebody say, well, North Korea was a player and we flattened them, to which my main character responded, does that change anything for us? Yeah. doesn't. It's over. It is over. So is there anything that a person listening right now who maybe has thought about these things, never really taken any action, is there anything that an average person can do outside the government? <laughs> Run around? No, no. There's a lot you can do. Uh, and this doesn't apply just to EMP, but to any major disaster. Every person should stockpile a few basic things in their life. Water. Water is the most important because without electricity, we will lose our water supply. Just put a couple cases of water in your closet. Even if you're just a single parent with a couple of kids, you could build up a supply of a month or two. Because one of the things that goes wrong with the full blowdown of the grid, command and control is lost. Cities will descend into chaos. You don't want to be out in the middle of the street trying to find a bottle of water. Be able to hold up. So food, just freeze-dried fruit to start, or even cans of soup. Yeah, you got to think about personal security. But I always say there, if you're going to go for that, be well-trained in what you're doing. And also a key thing, medication. If you have crucial medications, always keep a supply of at least a month or two on hand. Again, your pharmacies will be closed because the computers don't work. So these basic things can make a big difference. And finally, for heaven's sake, pressure your congressional representatives to get a bill passed. You know, under Trump, they were starting to take this seriously. They were actually starting to do studies and reports to move towards congressional action. And the day the new administration came in, they stopped it. We're spending a trillion dollars on infrastructure, not one dime on infrastructure security against EMP. Oh, but we've we've cha- we've uh, changed the pronouns of airmen to be air people, though. So I, I think oh, that's yeah, probably that's, worth that's, it. That's, that's going to protect us. Yeah, <laughs> of course. William Forston, before we let you go, tell me a little bit about your book series, if people want to get your books, and about this movie that's being ba- based on the first book. Okay. Uh, the book series is called One Second After the John Matheson Books. You can pick, you know, the best bet is to go to Amazon, get the Kindle, or if you're stuck in traffic every day while things still work, get the audio edition. Uh, the movie. From your lips to God's ear. You, you know how Hollywood goes. Oh, yeah. It's in development hell, huh? Oh, it's in development. We have the producer. We have some screenplays written. We're trying to get to the next step of getting money for a pilot. But that's hurry up and wait. So <laughs> I know that world. I know that world. And that is you the do, worst part you? of it. Yes. How's yours going? Uh, well, based on that book, I'm not even trying because I already went through it and had a couple series and uh, realized that, man, it takes it's it's more work. The creative work is like the fun part that you never get to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. you know the old jo- the old Hollywood joke. Uh, 
Uh, you heard about the dumb. Oh, God, this is a sexist joke. You heard about the dumb blonde in Hollywood. She was so dumb, she dated the book writer. <laughs> yes, yes. And there, but there's so much truth in that joke, though. Oh, there is. <laughs> Beyond the blonde part, I mean, it, for anybody, don't don't date a writer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. William, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Hopefully we can connect again soon. And, and uh, hey, you know, maybe the movie's made by then. Well, I hope so. The key thing is, Keep getting the word out there about EMP. We have to raise public awareness. Public awareness will finally mean congressional action at some point. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for your time, and uh, we'll be right back. More Wiggins America on the way. Man, thank you to everybody who's dropped off cookies and and cakes and stuff for us just because you listen to us on the radio. We really appreciate that. I especially do here Saturday morning, uh, Friday afternoon, of course. We got quite a few things. Todd and Katie and Rick and many others dropping off things just to say Merry Christmas. Appreciate that. Now, I get to wallow in it. Uh, Anything that I sort of stored away like a chipmunk on Friday... I now get to basically dive head first into, which is awesome because there's nobody here on a weekend. So here's what I would like to talk about in this segment before we get to the top of the hour, though. Wow, Wiggins America. Of course, it's about Colorado. I said I was going to come in this weekend just to talk about Colorado. We were going to do a best of. We have done a best of. We will continue to do some best of. But I can't let this go by. Usually this is a dead week for politics this week and next. But not this time. In fact, not this time ever in the last however many years. It's really amazing how many times we can say, truthfully, this is unprecedented. I don't love these times. I don't know that America, I don't know that people in general love times of high turmoil, but that's what we're in. And they just keep pressing. They're going to keep pressing because power is at stake. And people will oftentimes do anything for power. Right now, the Democrat Party is pushing so hard because they want power, because they're afraid of Donald Trump having power. So it's not just Colorado. You've heard that they are going to try to keep Trump off the ballot. If they have their way, they will. But the Supreme Court could step in. I'm not real. In fact, earlier this week, I would have said that I was not sure they would. But with more states now showing up as possibilities that might keep him off the ballot... I think the Supreme Court may have to step into this, even though they may not want to. So here's what I wanted to talk about outside of Colorado, and this is a little bit more breaking. This was mainly happening yesterday, but I pulled up Trump and Michigan because of all these headlines. Get this. Detroit News says Trump recorded pressuring Michigan canvassers not to certify election. Uh, Trump allegedly pressured Michigan election workers not to certify 2020 vote. The first one was CNN. The second one was ABC. You have Reuters saying Trump allies who push 2020 fraud claims face legal blowback. Uh, that one's not completely related to Trump, but it's, you know, it's in the universe. What's the point of me telling you all this about Michigan right now? Well, I was on the Mark Cox Morning Show yesterday. He brought that story up. I commented on it, gave my thoughts. I stand by those thoughts. However, he said something yesterday that made me realize, oh, that's why this is happening. Because what I said was... This is something we all knew about, and in fact, you don't even have to pay that close attention to politics to know that Trump was doing this in every major American city in swing states, Atlanta, I think he was probably doing it in Philadelphia, certainly Detroit, um, parts of the 
I would say Milwaukee and Madison, Wisconsin, you know, the liberal enclaves. These places, especially Detroit, I mean, come on. These places are corrupt. They're very corrupt. They have been for a long time. Chicago is on that list, but Chicago doesn't really matter anymore because Illinois is not a swing state. These these high Democrat areas are the most prone to fraud. And I'm not saying that means they have absolutely committed fraud. It's just easier there because you have so you, you have one party control. And you have a very difficult time getting Republican poll watchers to come out to a lot of these places, especially in 2020, although that's changing now because so many people are alerted to it. So I'm bringing this up to say that the stories are all that he pressured Michigan uh, workers to not certify the election. Well, he was actually talking to Detroit workers in particular because he and of all people, Ronna McDaniel, the head of the RNC, who is not exactly a conspiracy theory conservative, thought there were issues with the 2020 election coming out of Detroit. And they said, hold on. Don't certify that yet. We can get you attorneys because we're looking into some things. You already know all that. So that's all past. That's all happened and everybody knows about it. It's coming up now, though, and this is the point that Mark Cox made that made me go, oh, yeah, oh. They're bringing it back up now and even making it a news story now because now if they bring that stuff up, they can say, we're going to keep you off the ballot. It's not just that we don't like you. We don't like what you did. We're actually going to keep you from running for president. Even if people want to vote for you, we're not going to let them. That's the strategy happening right now. And in Colorado, well, it's not that it doesn't matter. Like we said, the word unprecedented means a lot. But in Michigan, it really does matter. That's a swing state. And if that state swings for Trump, but he's if you, if you can't vote for him, you're going to have a tough time winning the state. That's their strategy right now. And it's very, very sad to see this happening in our country. I pulled up a couple quotes from this week. I'm going to play Alan Dershowitz talking about Colorado here. Uh, listen to what he has to say. States have a great discretion in how they appoint electors. This will throw the entire system of electing president that we've now established for over 200 years into disarray. It's, it's a scandal. It's a shame. The justices who wrote this decision ought to be ashamed of themselves. It's a purely partisan ploy. And the Supreme Court ought to take this up as soon as possible and get us back to the business of electing presidents based on what the people want, not what partisans want and what they can get partisan judges to enact. That's Alan Dershowitz, a Democrat. Here is Jonathan Turley, who says that he is not a Trump guy, but here's what he had to say about those same judges. What the Colorado Supreme Court did is they basically took a blow at democracy in the name of democracy, as you mentioned. We've never needed the the democratic process more. We need voters to be able to make a decision. Because at some point, we've got to come back together. And I'll note, you know, yeah, there were four justices here that, that they finally found a majority to accept this dangerous theory. But there were three Democrats on the other side that refused to sign off. And some of those judges in other states that have rejected this theory, they're also Democrats. And they didn't do it because they had affinity for Donald Trump. They did it because they had affinity for the Constitution. And I'm hoping that we'll see that same profile of courage on the U.S. Supreme Court, because we need to speak as one voice right now and to say that what the Colorado Supreme Court did is wrong. This is not what we're about. 
Remember, to save democracy, they're going to keep their opponents off the ballot. We'll be right back. Get more at 971talk.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 